Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Emily in Glasgow, here, mm. here reporting. Yes, Ed, I've started watching Emily in Paris. I'm not gonna, I'm halfway through and I'm not gonna talk about it completely because otherwise it will take up the whole episode. All, mm. I'll, say, all I'll say is that it confounds me and compels me in equal measure. So that's that's what I'm doing, all I'm doing, and how I am. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, I think you you are embodying the Daniel Craig in Knives Out meme, really. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Compels me. That is it. That is exactly it me. It me, Ed. It me. Yeah, I love that. That even at the time, that was like my favorite line reading in that movie, and I'm really glad that it's kind of taken on this this extra life as as a meme because I think uh, the shift to Daniel Craig does in that moment to, to compels me though yeah. is uh, is really wonderfully done in terms of uh, comedic timing. I'm I'm good. I have uh, been watching a lot of movies over the past week or so. I mainly horror because obviously it's the spookiest of months so i've used that opportunity to kind of watch some films that i have been meaning to see like horror movies that people often cite as a classic as classics like uh, the stepfather with uh, terry o'quinn which is very good in terms of if you want to watch a movie where he plays the deeply unnervingly normal man who does absolutely does absolutely horrifying things the hitcher which Ooh, is one of the movies that I've always had people talk about how good that is and how good Rutger Hauer is in that, and that is a movie that I wound up absolutely loving, particularly because it's a movie that goes slightly farther than you think a horror movie is going to go in terms of the horrible things that Rutger Hauer does. Because, like, usually think, oh, like, a guy picks up a guy on a highway to give him a lift, and he turns out that he's, a, he's kind of a psychopath who's going to murder him. You kind of think, okay, like, a bunch of people are going to get menaced by this guy, but, like, there's going to be limits to how bad things go. And then, like, almost immediately, he kicks him out of the car, gets picked up by a family, and then the next thing you see is the family's car, like, stalled out on the side of the road, and the whole family's been murdered. And it's like, oh, wow, that's that's what this kind of movie is. Um, yeah. But I I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed how much it pushed, pushed against the boundaries. Um, and then I also watched some... Uh, less than classic horror movies that have just always been on my radar but I've never actually sat there and watched such as Leprechaun oh wow yeah (laughs) is a a film because I've only ever really heard about it in terms of its later sequels like Leprechaun into Hood (laughs) because I always assumed that it was one of those series like Nightmare on Elm Street where like oh this is one of those series that kind of got goofier as it went along like, you know, it kind of must have started as something sort of like serious and getting into like the psyche of America or whatever and then as it went along they just kind of got more and more like ridiculous and then watching this like oh no this started out daft and just clearly kind of continued on that that route but I really enjoyed uh, Warwick Davis as the leprechaun he clearly is having a very fun time dealing with a very shoddy script but I, was, I also think it is just very funny seeing it and seeing like Jennifer Aniston the year before she became like huge superstar with friends and being like 
oh, right, she kind of only knew how to play one role because she is basically Rachel in that movie and it's very weird that she's kind of doing like this movie that's perfect for like a sparkly primetime sitcom in a horror movie and it just not really coming together but um yeah that one that was that was a good time but not a good film by uh, any stretch of the imagination so we'll go on to the news right now and i think the only kind of like big news story from the past week was the news that uh, Cineworld uh, in the UK and Regal in the US, uh, who are uh, the same company, are closing hundreds of their cinemas in their respective countries as a result of the delays of several large movies, most notably No Time to Die, which was uh, mere weeks away from coming out and has now been moved back to 2021, but also Black Widow, which also had uh, you know a late 2020 release date and got moved back. And even the movies that are still coming out this year, like Wonder Woman and Death on the Nile, are got pushed back to basically Christmas. And there's like a real sense that uh, maybe <laughs> they probably will get pushed back further than then anyway. But the, the main reason they're closing is obviously that these big movies that are what a lot of theatres, particularly you know, the, the big multiplexes rely on, just aren't coming out. And even though... Like, Tenet came out and did sort of okay in the UK. It didn't do very well in the US at all. You know, it's kind of been chugging along, but still isn't getting the kind of traction that I think Warner Brothers and the film industry in general were hoping for. So, yeah, Regal and Cineworld are basically just saying, yeah, we're just going to have to close our cinemas for the foreseeable future until studios american studios anyway start putting out movies again and that sucks for all the people who work for those companies who are now probably going to get laid off and just for you know the the film industry in general because it puts it into an even more of a whole uh, holding pattern of when exactly we'll start to see kind of like big populist entertainment coming out again i think it's roughly a hundred and one i think is roughly the figure of cinemas that are closing um mm-hmm. because of this in the uk i think yeah, it's, it's something like 500 in the us as yeah well, it's real isn't yeah. yeah about 500 because cineworld also own picture house they acquired picture mm. house in about 20 uh 2011 2012 and so and, and you know from then on picture house you know had this sort of indie art house aesthetic but was still this kind of arm of this juggernaut and mm. again that's 80 cinemas, but think of how many screens are at your local Cineworld. Mm, like yeah. for mine in Glasgow, it's at least at least 15 of like huge, huge capacity. Yeah, I think Sheffield has about 20. It must be oh, like, yeah. like the Cineworld in Sheffield is massive. They're huge. And like they are multiplexes. And if a multiplex is falling down, like what is happening to your, you know, local cinema? And... I'm not saying, as some people have, saying, oh, if you can do this, then go to the cinema. It's completely up to you and how you feel comfortable. And again, the only science we really have is that being indoors can, you know, even with social distancing for a long period of time, that's very high risk of transmission. Mm. Especially with, you know, a lack of circulating air, which I think is kind of like 
the big thing. Like, I don't think a lot of cinemas are really set up to kind of keep the air circulating around. Whereas, you know, a lot of the other examples, people would cite, like saying, "Oh, if you can go shopping, you can go to a cinema." It's like, well, if you're going shopping, you're constantly moving around. Your the doors to the place are opening all the time, so air is. Yeah, so it's like it's a very different situation to sitting in an enclosed space for like two hours with everyone, even if they're wearing masks, breathing and their breath kind of like going around the place. Yeah, for sure. So I am really concerned about everyone who used to be employed at Cineworld and they've handled it awfully because Mm. everyone who worked for Cineworld found out at the same time the rest of the world did. And I think it goes to show... That in itself goes to show a level of callousness from Cineworld in that kind of very short-termism, people are totally replaceable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I, Ed, both from our times sort of working at, at a showroom, like ev- everyone has skills. But I think of the projectionists in particular, because yeah. if if you've ever if you've ever tried to untangle spaghetti and then make that like the biggest bowl of spaghetti you've ever seen and then make it worth about fifteen thousand pounds in terms of one reel and and try not to damage or break or split any of it i just remember like helping spool film back onto a reel the way that a projectionist can lace up a projector like that's that's a highly skilled job and i don't care what anyone else says um and again it's it's low paid jobs but so there's that level of callousness of not appreciating any of their staff and basically being like making everyone redundant and then making them come back at some indefinite point, mm. which in terms of turnover, I think it's about 5,000 jobs that are at risk in the UK because of yeah. this. And that there's no sense of subsidising because you know what, Ed, like I haven't looked at Cineworld's uh, financial records recently, but even if not them, there's there's money in the world that can subsidise this. Jeff fucking Bezos. Mm-hmm. Beelzebezos could literally just sneeze and all of the and, and it would be fine. I'm not saying that I'd be like over the moon if Amazon bought Cineworld, but they could and improve their own public image and they wouldn't even have to like Jeff Bezos wouldn't notice. Mm. Like it's it's wild to me and again these sort of media conglomerates it's like well what what are they worth and and what, what are we investing in in terms of the future because i don't think cinemas are going to go completely out like i think no. you know cons- like a conservative estimate two years for a vaccine maybe in the western world right i don't mm. i don't think every single cinema is going to be no longer like no longer viable do you know what i mean I, i'm still just spinning at the figures of it because i it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me that a few big films could tank the largest cinema chain in the uk right like yeah it because i understand and i'm pained by like local independent restaurants i'm seeing through the next sort of stage of uh, restrictions that have been announced um in the central belt in scotland a couple of mm. places have been like, look, we haven't had any rent reductions. We've had no furlough and our business will not survive if we close for 16 days. And that's, you know, restaurants that have been successful um, and been running for like 10 years. Yeah. And, and that's devastating. But I can understand how that can happen. I don't understand 
how because because restaurants rely on that immediate rolling trade right i don't understand mm. how cinemas can't continue to shut and i i don't think i'm being naive here like i i just think it's it is a choice it is a choice to let that many people go and will they have mm. redundancy packages i don't know i i i, I doubt it yeah and it's like it's not even a case where you would necessarily have to wait for a vaccine for you to be able to have people go to cinemas because in China, which obviously was where the first outbreak of COVID happened and where there was the initial kind of like, you know, wide, how it was initially very widespread, but they got it under control fairly quickly. Like their cinemas are back up at full capacity now. Like just this last weekend, there were two movies that earned over $150 million dollars in China on the same weekend because all their cinemas are back open and they have, you know, taken the steps that were needed to contain the virus to make it safe for people to, like, more or less resume normal life under, you know, with some restrictions and obviously precautions in place to prevent further outbreaks. And that's, you know, well before anyone's going to have a vaccine. And it is down to just, like, the simple basic things of, like, they took action early they were serious about it they didn't downplay the virus they didn't engage in kind of a haphazard rolling series of lockdowns where they kind of like say oh the the curve is starting to flatten now it's fine to start letting people back into shops mm-hmm. now we can start letting people go back to school they were like no we're waiting to this thing is a fucking line it's going to be a horizontal line yeah. and then things are going to get back up and their economy is yeah, has recovered, tourism's back up, you know, lots of people are going to China to go to see the Great Wall and everything. And that is entirely down to the Chinese government for all of the fucking awful things that China does. <laughs> you know, doing this exactly the right way. And, you know, I, I speak as, as, as an American. Uh, America fucking up quite badly. Britain fucking up less badly, but still pretty badly. Yeah, pretty badly. Yeah, in a way that like they are that their whole thing was like, oh, we want to do this to keep the economy going. You know, like that people are essentially just being like thrown into, you know, like Moloch, as everyone always makes the comparison. You know, like just being ground up to keep the the stock market happy. Mm-hmm. When all that has resulted in is more death, more people being sick, and the economies for both countries being fucked because. The businesses are closing and you don't have an economy if you don't have businesses. Yeah. Like, it's a very simple fact, you know. And, like, that's something that you see a lot over here in the US where there's all this talk about bailing out, like, fairly large restaurant chains and restaurant chains like Domino's and Chipotle doing really, really well during the pandemic and just loads of smaller places just being shut because there's no one looking out for them. And, like, that is the same thing on a larger scale that I think you're seeing with cinemas where there's been no effort to contain the virus honestly no serious effort no consequential effort to do it and so now you're in the situation where all the studios just like we can't release these movies because they will all flop and we'll lose huge amounts of money and you know the cinema chains are like well if there's no movies just to show then there's nothing we can do like no one's going to walk into a regal to just buy the popcorn you know, yeah. like they want to, they want to see something. They want to see James Bond and Anna de Armas do something. You know, like they don't want to see, they don't want to just like pay surcharges for candy. And it's just like a total. You can just trace all of this down to the failure of both governments, but particularly the American government, because so much of the UK 
film industry does depend upon American product. You know, so much of the multiplex is based on blockbusters from America. I think the question then, Ed, is, or the question that comes to me is like, well, then why does it depend so much on American product? Mm, Because that's clearly not a sustainable model, not going forward for about 18 months to two years, maybe, but it, it has shifted and choices have been made. And that's where the kind of weight of the industry, that's, that's the weight bearing load. Right. And, and why, (laughs) because what, and again, it's this kind of everyone sort of what, what had been a sure bet or this idea of like, Oh, well that's definitely going to happen. And that's, you know, supply chain is still going to happen. And it's like, you know, why, why are we basing these things on a few products rather than the benefit of all of the people? And she's gone into socialism again. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost as if, Ed, it's almost as if, anyway. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, particularly with like, with Bond in particular, that they are sort of holding back and being cautious in one sense right they're not being cautious in terms of are we putting our audiences at risk it's Mm. are we being they're being cautious in terms of putting their margins at risk and that bond is being delayed delayed and i guess in this you know the the kind of line for it is oh we want people to see it in its full glory on the big screen altogether which i understand because that is the kind of film that you that you would but i mean it's very hard to take any sort of release at its word. And then, yeah. And then for films that are being released, where are they going to go? And also like, you know, various like fees and levies on distributors. If they are putting stuff into cinemas, like the money's all in the strange pots basically. And it's just squeezing on the lower levels more. And she's gone into socialism again. It's almost (laughs) if, Ed. It's almost if. I think it also gets to the fact, again, to go back to like China, China has the the benefit of it has like a thriving film industry, like a local film industry that they zealously protect. Like they have such strict limits on what foreign movies can be shown there and so much of what is shown there is you know locally made Chinese movies and that is something that Britain just doesn't have obviously we have a a film industry and and there is like a you know there's lots of very talented people working in the film industry in Britain there's lots of great movies that get made on all kinds of scales but there isn't that sense of like oh these movies need to be put into uh, into uh, multiplexes unless they're like you know some big tony oscar winner or oscar contender that everyone suddenly decides to rally around like there or you know for the most part if it's like a small interesting british movie it's going to play on art house or it'll play on the smallest screen that an odian has to spare and that is like a large part of the problem i think is that you know when the the spigot from america turns off then there isn't really that bulk of product that you can then put out there you know to put it in kind of like horrible <laughs> terms that that um devalues it as art but like that that is you know it isn't it's an art and it's an industry you know so there is that just sense of like if you don't have the movies to show then people aren't going to be able to like show up and 
this honestly you could see a situation in which you know everything goes to shit in America as it has but Britain you know does what it needs to do to keep the, the the virus under control and then cinemas reopen and suddenly it's like oh well I guess I don't know we'll just have to put all these kitchen sink dramas into 30 screens or whatever and people will go and see them because it's they want to go see a movie or whatever yeah. and they just that just isn't there because the government in in the UK doesn't really support the film industry in any major way except on like the, the kind of the biggest hits that aren't necessarily the most interesting films which and so they're just yeah yeah for sure and sorry i had to cut in but because i'm just like for, for the benefit of the of the tape i am like nodding frantically along with this because <laughs> um because and, and not to sort of uh, be to that one astronaut shooting the other in the back of the head in front of earth but it, it, the uk government never has supported <laughs> the arts um not not for decades mm. and in terms of the you know we talk about like British films. Well, they're co-productions. Look at like who who are the real sort of? Can we name like one film production company on the same level as like Warner Brothers in the UK? No, we cannot. Mm. You've got maybe like Working Title, might be the yeah. biggest, and hasn't that been bought up? And that's the thing. Like the the UK independent film industry is a cottage industry. You have scattered sort of producers desperately trying to make co-productions, majority with Europe, because Europe. Mm funnily enough, funds the shit out of the arts and is putting the UK and the US to absolute shame in terms of where it's funneling um, protection and retention money. Mm. And then you'll get these kind of independent production companies that rarely break like eight people working for them. Mm. And then huge amounts of um, film crew amazingly talented and hardy and brilliant crew and then you know who actually gets you know the idea of what a british film is like that's the thing that the bfi and the uk funding is very caught up and and concerned about to the to the detriment of just funding films that are in the uk (laughs) by people in the uk which and it's a comparison with China is really interesting in terms of sort of national product and mm. how do you want to be seen? And so much of British, like so much of British content over the past 10 years has either been incredibly rose tinted look backs at the past and like reimagined histories and period pieces like the King's speech. Hello. Or sort of small, really quite gritty kitchen sink stuff. That's kind of what, British film industry still looks like there and I mean it's not to say that it's not there's not absolutely amazing people working within the UK and um the UK's film industry but they are like exceptions that do not prove the rule this is a this is a systemic thing of like years of funding and choices in terms of what a British film is considered to be the other interesting thing about China is don't they also crack down on like tax and tax fraud pretty hard yeah it's very like that's one of the things that um i remember reading an article about this years ago i think it was in in regards to the fourth transformers movie which i think was the one that had like huge swathes that were shot in china and they were just talking about how much money how like much money that 
goes into the country in terms of like productions are there they're spending all this money on licenses and whatever stays in the country and then in terms of box office as well like the amount of money that leaves the country and goes to the US for the studios is actually like a really small percentage it's like maybe 10% of the gross but China's so huge that you kind of think that it kind of works out for the studios. I think, well, if we make a movie that makes $500 million in China, then we get $50 million out of it. It's like, yeah, sure, well, you know, that's that's money in the bank. Well done. Um, but yeah, like China is very, very good at keeping money in the country once it's invested. So yeah, so it's all very grim. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, unfortunately. But yeah, like you, I do have hope that once we're all through this, you know, like theatrical distribution will will come back. Obviously, the success that you're seeing of like drive-ins or like small, like there's a, a theater here in, in Orlando called the Enzian, which puts on like events in a big park, which has kind of been their big thing that has got, they've used to kind of, you know, keep people paying to see movies. And, you know, they put on screens of older movies there. I think that has demonstrated that there is obviously still a desire for people to go and watch movies we want to go watch movies in a public space you know it is a a big part of the last century of popular culture is people like going to the movies they like seeing movies in a communal setting i just think it just it's one of the many things about the last like what is it six months seven months of all of this that is the most heartbreaking as you just look at this and you think there's so much that governments could have done to prevent this, to prevent the economic and uh, the economic pain that so many people are going to be going through, either in terms of controlling the virus, taking it seriously, taking all the steps early on to kind of make it a minimally disruptive thing in people's lives, or failing that, just going, okay, we're just going to pay everyone to stay home because that's the easiest way to keep the economy going and to keep all these businesses from closing down so that once everything is under control they can reopen and the economy can kind of like roar back to life and it's just such blinkered stupid short-sighted thinking on everyone's part and it just makes me so fucking mad all the time all the time all the time but anyway uh so yeah so that's that's kind of like the one news story which is good because we talked about it for like 25 minutes (laughs) so we'll get (laughs) on to the 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 main topic for this week which is also tied into the coronavirus uh and this is what um you and i have kind of have called uh you know we use the popular phrase online this hits different which is about watching movies and tv shows that are produced before the pandemic which is pretty much all of them like only a handful of movies have been made post pandemic at this point out and certainly only i don't know if any have been released at this point and the, the the experience of us all living through the pandemic of having to stay in our houses like so much and working from home and all this sort of stuff affecting how we feel about watching these older movies um there was a tweet from uh, Aaron, Aaron Stewart Arn which i think really got to the heart of this which was, uh, does anyone else get this overwhelming sentimentality when watching a movie with really simple prosaic things in life that are gone now? Like, I'll see someone hug a friend in a mall or a group at a barbecue in a movie shop pre-pandemic and it hits me harder than any of the drama. And that, like, we'd already been kind of like talking about doing this subject when uh, I saw that tweet and shared it with you. But I thought, oh yeah, that crystallises kind of what we're, we want to discuss here, which is like watching movies where even just like simple like non-sensational just movies about people living life where you just see people like 
doing normal things and you're like yeah miss that (laughs) wish i could be doing that again um and my first example of that uh is the movie rocket man the elton john uh, musical biopic which came out last year or two years ago at this point uh, which I watched for the first time a couple of weeks ago and enjoyed uh, quite a bit. It, it felt a little bit kind of like someone in a studio somewhere went man I really wish we had a Broadway musical about, about Elton John that we could adapt into a movie and someone said well let's just make it, <laughs> let's kind of reverse engineer it And but that is, is good because he is the, the sort of person whose music and life and persona are perfectly suited to kind of like a big flashy Broadway style musical so it makes sense uh, but the moment in it that really kind of like stood out to me and really kind of had me kind of like hit with just like a real pang was the scene where he performs at a venue in LA and I want to say it's when he performs Rocket Man for the for the, for the first time as far as the, the narrative of the movie is concerned and it's this scene where there's just like all these people like a crush of people watching him and dancing and like cheering and like I, all I could think of was like all the gigs that I went to were in all these kind of like sweaty clubs where just like there's hundreds of people like cramming in together like going to the lead mill in Sheffield to go and watch bands or like um, at the Tramlines Festival in Sheffield when I would go and see like friends bands and like they'd be just like or everyone just like trying to cram into bars that aren't really meant to put on live music Um, but everyone just kind of does it anyway and just thinking like god I miss that real sense of like everyone having this like real communal thing this, this kind of real moment of shared intimacy of everyone's kind of like bodies just like colliding against each other while enjoying music and that's not what that scene is going for like that is not the thing that they're doing it's that obviously that's part of it and that it's talking about the sense of communion between performer and artist there but like it obviously had a way more uh, a way bigger impact on me and in a different way than i think was intended when the movie came out in 2018 yeah, because none of these things have been imbued with the sense of this all might be gone one day unless a character's kind of considering a sort of like their own mortality or like mm. the winding down of something. You look at something like Big Night, which I haven't rewatched, but I watched at some point during lockdown and that ending is just so, oh, it's something else. But that feels different now in terms of what we were discussing sort of in news about about sort of restaurants and, and things closing down and that that's always sort of happened but again we we don't really look at what happens when people don't succeed at business and it's made me mm. realize quite how much of film is about like someone someone still succeeds like in uh you've got male Meg Ryan's shop that was handed down to her by her mother and one of her last connections to her mother is gone but hey she gets to be in love and marry tom hanks who <laughs> who bought bought it all out so yeah i I've, i feel even more radicalized looking at that kind of stuff i rewatched um benjamin simon amstel's um first feature which mm. i yeah which i think i saw pre el pandemico and i didn't realize i would miss seeing like being in a comedy club and viscerally mm. feeling stuff start to go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or like being at a really pretentious performance art unveiling. And it's sort of going away to come back, isn't it, Ed? I really miss being in 
pubs and thinking, I can't wait to get home. <laughs> yeah. I lo- like, <laughs> because I'm just at home all the time. And it's, it's difficult to, um, uh, so that, that feels different. E- even just that kind of, not, not even sort of being as in close proximity body wise, but just sharing a room with lots of people and having mm. that kind of, you know, that kind of visceral sense of, an atmosphere i guess yeah like everyone's really enjoying this or oh this isn't going well or people are bored i miss that mass that mass register mm. i think the only sort of spooky film that i've i've seen uh, in this spookiest of months is i've been doing an awful lot of rewatching mm-hmm. the invitation uh yeah karen gasama absolute genius that hits very different <laughs> i have to say because it is a fantastic film for being essentially set in one location. Mm. And things get uh, very weird. Um, another thing about that film that I didn't realise, stuff doesn't get incredibly weird until like the final act. And it is, it is it is a perfect film, in in my opinion. Um, and I don't want to ruin it. But it's, very, it's very uneasy throughout. Oh, like yeah. It, it does that uh, horror movie thing of like, oh, they hit an animal with their car early on. It just kind of completely unsettles you. <laughs> so even though sure. nothing overtly weird is happening, it, it yeah, it starts on a note of just everyone feeling rattled, which is a kind of a good place for a movie to start, I think, in terms of making you feel on edge. Absolutely. And it, ke- and it does not let that up the whole way through. And it's incredibly sinister but it also manages to all of the fear is social it's about the individual versus the group but not in a sort of democratic way in a sort of peer pressure social manipulation way and i just was amazed it was made in like 2015 and that it kind of acts as an allegory for post truth mm-hmm. and i think that level of kind of what very well meaning and very traumatized people look to to make sense of the world and try and move forward and that that film is just completely shot through with so much compassion but it's so nuanced and but also yeah mainly just a lot of people in the same in the same room for the entire time I really felt that on a level instead of being like oh it's like a one set location piece I really noticed and felt Oh God, they're in the same place this whole time. Hmm. Yeah, so that yeah, that hit very different. And it's on Netflix in the UK. You all don't have an excuse. Go for it. Yeah, you mentioning there about it having a different feeling, like in uh, it making you feel like a different movie in terms of like our, our post-truth world. I just thinking about it now. It's like it probably feels quite different in like a post-QAnon world, yeah. like in terms of the like you say, people who are like traumatized or people who have just kind of like are trying to make sense of what's happening in the world being kind of like drawn to things that are demonstrably not true but you know kind of getting drawn into that world because so much doesn't seem to make sense about the world to them like that movie yeah probably does tie, like tie into that particularly strongly i find any movie or tv show or anything that takes place in a bar at the moment Ooh, to really yeah. kind of hit heart home or, or a pub because like you know my parents ran pubs in the uk for years and years and years they they sold their business 2007 i think and by like, use that money was basically what they used to kind of move to america and 
so much of my life revolved uh, around going to the pub, like working in the pub or just kind of like hanging out in the pub when I was a kid. And I can't help but think about like how different things would be now if they had decided like not to say if they were still working at the pub now um like how awful all this would be if they were still trying to make it work in that situation just what a completely destabilizing thing it would be and how lucky they were to you know kind of get out of that and to not have to worry about that sort of thing but also you know it's just like a place I have spent a lot of my time (laughs) over the course of my life is going to pubs going to bars and it's weird how that kind of like crops up in unexpected places the one just today in fact i watched um the guest the adam wingard movie with dan mm. stevens which is yeah. terrific if anyone has it it's a huge amount of fun very brutal very fun but there's a scene in that towards the middle of the movie where dan stevens character and the young son of the family he's staying with go to a bar uh, in basically in order to beat up the people who have been bullying the kid and I did find myself kind of for a second thinking like oh, that place probably wouldn't be wouldn't survive the pandemic. You know, it's a, a small it's a small bar in kind of a rural part of the country with not a huge amount of clientele. That's probably not long for this world. Like those are the sort of things where you're just kind of like evaluating your in your head. It's like, well, you know, I wonder if this place would 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 be able to survive. And you know, but obviously that. Thor gets blown away by like the great synth score and Dancy Dan Stevens owning people, <laughs> but like it's hard not to have those moments just kind of like flash through your mind of just thinking like yeah on one level just like nostalgic feelings of like god bars are cool <laughs> like yeah. it's nice to go to a bar and have a drink and just kind of relax but also just kind of like it's applying like the real world logic to the world of the movie kind of thinking well you know six years later will that place be open i, I can't see how yeah i can't yeah, see how they would yeah. keep it going how many covers are there and and to feel to feel at ease with not exactly strangers, people you don't know, but people who majority probably live in the same city as you or know someone who does. Just that kind of, that level of social cohesion or mm. just social interaction. Like so if whenever I see, and I mean, it's in it's in everything, <laughs> like TV or, or film, just someone going to write in a cafe. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And spend a lot of time there. I've only been able to do that very recently you know with distancing and and all of that and I was like oh fuck I've missed this because I came away after like an hour and a half and I was like god I've got so much done and it's like yeah because you work well like this you do well to go somewhere else and get caffeinated and be have other eyes on you or be around people so you can't just like procrastinate wildly um at least I mean I'm still on Twitter but you know what I mean the other thing mm. the other thing is is that stuff that seemed so utterly ridiculous and far away in in a kind of like high concept or just like something I've never experienced now all feels very close like I, like my ears prick up at the mention of lockdown which mm-hmm. only became a word that I was vaguely even aware of was when my friend and friend of the podcast Matt who lives in Shanghai he went into lockdown and I was like, oh, that, or, or maybe even quarantine, he might have said, but lockdown sort of kind of got, um, I was more aware of it in the vocabulary. And now obviously I hear it all the time. Mm. And I realised the only time I'd really heard it before 2020 was in prison stuff. 
Right. Because yeah. I uh, again rewatched uh, Out of Sight recently, and they mentioned lockdown, and my whole body just kind of I felt like this weird, almost like muscular reflex of like me. No, because <laughs> that's the only time before. And also, you know, the BBC shared when lockdown was announced um, a clip from the uh, sort of third or fourth series of The Thick of It. I think it's the third series where Malcolm announces mm-hmm. we're going into fucking lockdown. And it's seen as like, you know, it means something very different and it's seen as like over the top or whatever. But I was like, oh, yeah, that has a completely different meaning to me now because it's applied to me. And by my life, I mean... like everyone I know (laughs) for the longest time Mm. so all of that was like oh something that would never even pass with me before is like oh no that's fundamental and also at the beginning of the year remember that Ed remember that when it was just the threat of uh, World War 3 in a new year that was that was the worst thing and and, you know Brexit or anyway but there was also a little show called Love is Blind (laughs) where it was like these people don't see each other they only talk to each other through these pods (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. But again, <laughs> Daniel Craig meme <laughs> insert here. <laughs> um, and now I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of what we're doing. We're all kind of pod people. And it's not to the extent, obviously, that, um, uh, you know, and it would be lovely to be uh, taken away for a luxury um, spa and hotel honeymoon <laughs> after this. Obviously, we can all sort of see each other through video conferencing and things. But just that idea of being like and and talking about bubbles and all of that, I was like, how how did I think this concept was so ridiculous now, looking back? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think my primary association with the word phrase lockdown was the uh, Kanye West song Love Lockdown. Oh, yeah. And that, that was probably that was that was a banger in the day. Yeah. Ruined in two separate ways now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, like, obviously, really old, like, genuinely quite older movies feel very different because, obviously, they're, they're shot ages and ages ago and they don't have to think about this thing. I thought um friend of the show, Chris Vornburn, had an, an amazing tweet earlier today, which I found really funny, which was, you can make blazing saddles now, not with social distancing, which uh, <laughs> I thought was a great joke. But, like, I, I do find it being especially, like, that feeling of oh, wow, things have really changed since then, to be especially uh, poignant with, like, movies that have just recently been made because it's that sense of, like, oh, man, they have no idea what's coming. And the the, the big example for me in terms of things I've watched recently was uh, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead, mm. the uh, documentary that premiered on, on Netflix and this is an early recommendation everyone should watch it it's a fantastic documentary um, and it's really funny and playful and really insightful about you know grieving someone while they're still there and things like that and it's but but a lot of that movie consists of Kirsten Johnson staging various deaths for her dad and you kind of like see him like walking down a street and then an air conditioner falls on his head and then he's lying on the floor and then you know the scene ends and then you see like a crowd of people kind of like coming around him to kind of like move all the debris and you know because the the shot's finished and they're done with him and so much of it's just like an old man in new york being surrounded by lots of people and all the time i was thinking like bad like within a year's time this would be a major health hazard for dick johnson (laughs) because like he's a he's in a vulnerable group and new york was especially hardly hit and like none of that stuff has anything to do with the documentary which obviously is incredibly personal wonderfully well-made thing about kirsten johnson's 
dad kind of having a, a degenerative disease and her wanting to kind of capture him and his essence before he goes and but but like I just can't not think about that thing because it like so many things that we now think of in terms of the pandemic in terms of like knowing who are in the at-risk groups and all this sort of stuff just kind of like percolating through my brain all the time and that is just like one of those things that you just don't really you know you can't really expect when someone makes a movie and when they release it that will come out at a time where just certain aspects of it will hit you in a different way uh, another one in terms of movies that came out this year uh, I think was the the trip to Greece which I kind of feel hits a lot of those same points where you know it's a movie where and a TV show obviously but over here in the US it was released as a movie where so much of it is about traveling it's about going to restaurants and eating like nice food it's so much about like the social aspect of going around a place and discovering something of the culture and just watching it i watched it with my parents because they loved the uh the previous three movies as well we watched them all together and like so like so often there was a comment of like won't be able to do that now (laughs) it's just like those movies are just to me so embody like so much of like uh, what is currently not possible in the world of just like going around a place and being able to like sample all these like wonderful restaurants and again kind of has that whole sense of me thinking like I wonder if that place is going to stay open or not which again is like considering that movie is, is already fairly melancholy and like obsessed with death and the end of things yeah. like like that that element of it like really does kind of like take on a different feeling as a result for sure I I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the pandemic is kind of considered and written into more things, because I think it's the second Borat film, which is the first thing Mm. I've seen that is coming out very soon that appears to have brought that in. Yeah. You know what? One thing I've actually watched that I haven't seen before (laughs) over the past Mm. couple of weeks, amidst all of my rewatching, I watched finally for the first time Swiss Army Man. Oh, wow. Which that's a, a an interesting movie. It really is. I I laughed. I cried. I was in awe of Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano. Like, what more mm. did you ask for, really? And yeah, it was it was wonderful, and I found it really moving in a way that I'm not sure I would have done at the time when it came out. Even though I I like to think that it would be, but it just had this resonance of someone who's been driven nearly mad by being on their own for so long mm-hmm. yeah and the kind of the structures and sort of talking about what's good about life and sort of what's the point of life and why do we do all of these things and i think it's a really what what at the at the time i was like oh sounds like an edgelord gimmick is actually incredibly soft and tender and kind of innocent and nuanced as it comes out Mm. but something about not feeling quite right in the world and being like well what's the world that we want to return to why is it like this way because in a kind of naive childlike oh if you if you love life and what's good about life why is so much of life pushing that down but the bit that really made me cry is where and, and without giving too much away Paul Dano has created this scene that's um kind of like a he's he's uh, replicating this time he saw a woman on a bus mm-hmm. um but he's basically made this bus from like there's an awful lot of stuff hanging about in those woods you have to say a lot of twine anyway 
but he is helping Daniel Radcliffe's character, who happens to be um, a, a corpse, a flatulent corpse, mm-hmm. um, understand what life is because he's essentially forgotten. And he puts in these two kind of cable, almost like jump cable leads as like headphones and creates this kind of almost like Zoe trope so that it looks like landscapes going by on the bus. And he's just like, oh, you know, looking out the window. And that's one of the kind of high points he talks about in terms of of life and being on a bus, Ed. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, and and sort of being like being wistful. idly looking out the window just sort of getting from a to b whereas now i feel like being in public i'm still like particularly on public transport which i'm trying to use as little as possible there's just this extra level of mental load of constantly being like am i okay are you okay am i doing this right and i Mm. think swiss army man hit different to me watching it for the first time now precisely because of that resonance and that but what it crucially saying is what is good about life and why are we pushing it down? And yeah, I was, yeah, I was taken aback by quite how the bits that really affected me, basically. Yeah, public transport, I think, is one of those things as well that when I see it in a movie, it's like, oh, my God, I used to, I used to like taking trains, mm-hmm. love taking a train. Last night I watched, I started watching the movie versions of Neon Genesis Evangelion which are basically like starting about 13 years ago they basically started remaking the entire series as a series of four feature like movies and I there's a point in the first movie where the main character uh, Shinji is like he's not going to get in the Evas the big mech suits anymore and he just gets on a train and he just like rides on the train for a little bit listening to music and that was like one of those scenes which in the the show and in the movies was always kind of quite impactful because it's him kind of like wallowing in his sense of doubt about what his purpose in the world is but watching this this I, I just kind of think about thought about how like around about this time of year I think as we mentioned on the last episode like this would usually be the time of year that I go back to the UK to visit people and so much of that is me like going around on the train to various places in the UK and like you know kind of staying with people and that was that really kind of hit hard in a way that I don't think it would have under normal circumstances like that scene in the TV show when I watched it last year had nowhere near the same kind of impact as watching it now where I was just kind of like thinking yeah man I really miss like being on a train and going down to London and listening to something on my iPod like that was such a such a big part of like my 20s basically was like going on train and visiting people particularly once I was out of university and people moved to different parts of the country and that became a big part of like maintaining friendships with people yeah so that that was one of those things I think I do feel like public transport is, is one of those areas of life that when I see it in a movie like really does kind of make me think god I miss that yeah for sure I yeah um because the number of times where I've just you know put my headphones in and you're like well I certainly have this like it's the soundtrack I am the protagonist (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but also in terms of like yes of uh things we really miss I have I've purposefully not watched anything that involves swimming pools or like right as much as possible I'm not mm-hmm. a massive swimmer, Ed, but I've really missed not being able to go at least a bit. 
this summer, like tried to dip my toe quite literally and figuratively into sort of wild swimming, but not being quite like up on it to do it. And now it's pretty dark and cold. Don't know if you've noticed, Mm. but that feels really, and the idea of like sharing all that water with people and just generally, I'm like, it's amazing that we didn't sort of wash our hands and sanitize our hands to the extent that we do now. Maybe we should have always done that. Because hmm. it's kind of disgusting <laughs> when you think about it, particularly in like, well, I've only ever really lived in cities. So now I'm just like, Whoa. <laughs> it's amazing that I, <laughs> I'm as okay as I am. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that just reminds me of... Um someone i can't remember who it was but someone posted on instagram about going on holiday and going to see the sea because they hadn't seen the sea in a while and be finding that very emotional because of just like you know it being this kind of like huge thing that you don't necessarily really think about all that often until you don't go and do it and that's what the swimming the swimming pool thing like really reminded me of that of like particularly for me as someone who's like had grew up with family in real in north wales which has is a seaside town so like several times a year i would go to see the sea and it would just always be this kind of like wonderful thing of seeing this vast expanse of water and kind of like playing on the beach and just kind of like staring out at it and just thinking about how that's not something that i've done in a while i think the last time i went i saw the sea was around last around this time last year one of my cousins came over to visit and we went out to the coast for a day and just thinking about how that's one of those like you know genuinely hugely majestic things <laughs> that you just don't really think about if you if you have ready access to it or you kind of think oh i could go and hop out and go to you know a small seaside town and have like a nice afternoon there now thinking like well i could hop in my car and just drive there and stare at it and honestly that probably would be quite overwhelming (laughs) if i did nothing else uh yeah i think there are a lot of experiences like that where i'm not i probably even couldn't think of them off the top of my head of like what would be a thing that you would just like do now and just think god this is so nice this is such an it's so nice to be able to do this i think there are things that we will all discover in our own time in our own ways as you know the pandemic continues as lockdown continues until you know we're through the other side of this and we can all start trying to live relatively normal lives again and just suddenly be like oh right yes this totally normal thing is making me cry so we'll end this episode as we end all episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, Ed, seeing as we've been uh, spent this whole episode talking about things that are changing, I think it's important to recommend something that we can always depend on, which is the beauty, humour and gratitude manifested. That is Mandy Patinkin. Because mm. uh, Rachel Syme has a really beautiful interview with him entitled Mandy Patinkin is still singing. And oh, just I, I, I think of him and I just oh, I, I, he's just such a wonderful man and manages to be, I think, positive and optimistic from a really genuine place. One of like complete self-awareness and compassion and not in a kind of toxic positivity, positive mental attitude way which I think is really something quite remarkable. And, you know, Rachel Symes asking him, like, do you get annoyed when people still ask you about, like, being a Nego Montoya? He's like, I pinch myself that I get to be that guy. Like, <laughs> oh, yes. So Mandy Patinkin is still singing in The New Yorker. 
fantastic and we'll put a link to that in the description if people want to go straight to it I am going to recommend a movie that I watched for the first time this week uh, which I had not really heard a huge amount about other than the people who are in it but I wound up like really loving it which is Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life which is a kind of comedy fantasy that Albert Brooks wrote and directed and starred in from 1991 where he plays a kind of you know Los Angelino who in the opening uh, minutes of the movie buys a new car and then promptly is killed by a bus and then the rest of the movie is him in the afterlife being basically put on trial to defend the decisions that he's made in his life to determine if he can like ascend the next level of um, existence and it's a really funny really clever philosophical movie about the nature of life the meaning of life uh, which is chock full of like really funny observations as you would expect from Albert Brooks it's got a fantastic supporting term from Rip Torn as his lawyer who kind of like has to defend and argue for all the decisions he's made in his life and it also has a genuinely lovely sweet and uplifting romance between Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep as another kind of deceased person who is defending her choices in her life and I just was like totally bowled over by it I think like Albert Brooks had this like amazing run of like 12 years or so where he made like four movies and they were all absolutely fantastic and this was the last of his kind of like great run Uh, and after that he kind of got a bit spottier and then just stopped directing movies but I think this one is the one that I think combines a lot of the elements of what he does well in the best possible way where it's incredibly funny there's some great just pure visual humor in there like there's a montage of him just being completely inept at anything involving DIY which is really really funny Mm -hmm. but there's also just so much kind of like thoughtful clever sweet stuff in it and I think it's really good and really underrated and people should uh, should check it out it's currently on the Criterion channel here in the US I think it expires at the end of the month so uh, go and check it out uh, it features dead people so sure count it as a horror for your Halloween you know <laughs> dead people are scary uh, so that's defending your life if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fans, Spotify all the usual places, rate us, review us and recommend us to your friends, it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 